Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. And welcome back to the other half of episode 50. How was your break? It was fine, thanks. Understand? Which is a joke I wanted to do when introducing <laughs> you for Starlock 17, but then got to. But right now, Quad's going to give us the plot description for Singles. Yes, this film surrounds the lives of a half dozen 20-something people who live and work in Seattle, Washington. Uh, most of them live in the same apartment complex, but a couple of them live elsewhere. And I'm kind of going out of sequence from the film. Live with it. We start with Linda Powell. She's played by Kara Sedgwick, and, uh, Sedgwick, and she's the one main character who doesn't live in the apartment building. She works for an organization that deals with environmental concerns, and she meets a student named Louise, who is from Spain. They're getting along pretty well, and they start dating. Well, Linda's a very happy camper. She tells one of her co-workers that this relationship feels new and exciting, and she and Louise don't seem to be bothered by the usual problems that couples face, or that she herself faced in the past. Uh, Louise tells her that he's having a problem with his student visa, and he has to return to Spain for a while to straighten it out. So, as a token of her affection, she gives him the remote control for her garage parking space, telling him that he's always welcome. Not long after that, Linda goes out to a rock club with her friend and spots Louise at the bar with another woman. Linda leaves the bar absolutely shattered. Next, we meet Steve Dunn. He's played by Campbell Scott as he talks to the audience in his kitchen, and I should note that all of our main characters do this at one point or another in the film. Steve tells us about a recent breakup with a girlfriend, and he relates a few anecdotes about his own life, like the dime a doctor tried to explain how babies are made, or how his father told him when he was eight years old, have fun, stay single. Steve works for a company that does uh, city planning, and he hopes that one day his personal project of uh, building a luxurious commuter train, which he calls the Super Train because he never saw the NBC series of the same name, he views it as a way to solve both the problems of pollution and the traffic problems that are created by drivers. By chance, Steve sees Linda in a club and he approaches her, and over the noise of the loud live band, which, by the way, is Alice in Chains, he tries to convince her that he is not a sleazy guy looking only for sex by saying he doesn't have an act, but she tells him not having an act is your act. Steve walks away rejected, but a few days later, while at a newsstand with his friend Dave, Steve bumps into Linda again and the two have a conversation. They go on a date and they seem to enjoy each other's company, but Steve is a little insecure and he doesn't call her back for four days. He still convinces her to give him one more chance, and while talking at Steve's apartment, Steve tries to give her the remote to his garage parking space. Linda has a little PTSD flashback from her time with Louise, and she leaves in a hurry. She goes home, and as she's settling in, Steve rings the doorbell. Linda jumps into his arms and kisses him, taking him upstairs to her place, 
the two have sex and become more serious about each other. After a few weeks, Linda tells Steve that her period is late. Steve buys several home pregnancy tests, and in a really cute scene, the results come back positive. Steve asks her to marry him. Linda has her doubts, and she leaves her answer ambiguous. One day while driving, Linda pushes a yellow light, and she is violently broadsided by a pickup truck rushing the green. She goes into shock after a few moments and wakes up in a hospital room with minor injuries. However, she's lost the baby. She's depressed, so she decides to tell Steve she's going to Alaska for a few weeks for her job. The two don't acknowledge it right away, but they're breaking up, and they even keep up the charade until the day she returns. Steve becomes sad by the separation, but still continues on with his work, and one night he gets a little drunk, and he calls Linda from a club's payphone, telling her answering machine that he wants to give it another shot. Unfortunately, Linda comes into her apartment just as he hangs up, and when she tries to play the message back, the machine eats the tape so she never hears Steve's message. One of the mayor's aides gets him some time with the mayor where Steve can pitch his commuter train. The mayor unfortunately rejects the proposal outright, saying he's seen such ideas before and people from Seattle just love their cars too much. Now Steve becomes deeply depressed. He quits his job. He holds up in his apartment, which just becomes an absolute cesspool of trash from food delivery and unopened mail. Janet, one of his neighbors and a good friend, played by Bridget Fonda, visits him and tells him that he needs to snap out of his depression before it completely consumes him. She gives him a secret knock to let him know she'll be checking up on him in the future. Steve starts to clean up his place and look for another job. And while waiting for a response to one of his applications, he hears Janet's knock, but when he opens the door, it's Linda standing there. She's willing to give their relationship another try. Okay, so Janet's story. Janet Livermore is a 23-year-old who works in a downtown coffee shop. She has a boyfriend, Cliff Poncier. He's the lead singer of a local rocky-slash-punky band called Citizen Dick. Cliff is played by uh, Matt Dillon. Cliff works three jobs between gigs, but he's also very dedicated to getting his band a recording contract, even though they're not very popular in the Seattle music scene. In fact, they get negative reviews both for their live performances and their recorded performances. And he views Janet as little more than a groupie, even though she's absolutely crazy about him. Janet becomes somewhat obsessed with her breast size because she is seen that Cliff is decorating the walls of his apartment with posters of big-breasted women. She asks Cliff outright if her breasts are too small, and he gives her an honest, sometimes. She makes an appointment with a plastic surgeon who is played by Bill Pullman, and the two work out a computer model of what size she'd like to be. When she goes for the procedure, Steve takes her and she tells him what she's looking for in a man, someone who has his own place, has a steady job, is responsible and appreciates her, and who says, God bless you, when she sneezes. Steve tells her that's a tall order and says she's, and she says, Well, she's narrowed the list down to the point where someone who will say, God bless you when she sneezes, will get the job done. She later puts Cliff to that test. She gives out a fake sneeze while sitting next to him. And all he does is hand her a box of tissues and says, don't get sick. Don't get me sick before my next gig. The doctor surprises her with what he calls a first of his career. He says he thinks she doesn't need the surgery. And then if Cliff can't appreciate her for who she is, then he doesn't deserve her. He also tells her he's attracted to her, but she very kindly turns him down, saying, He's a doctor, and he's handsome, and he should be able to attract lots of beautiful women. But she does take his advice, and she doesn't have the surgery. Janet breaks up with Cliff and makes the best of her single life. Cliff tries to get her back by putting rose petals arranged in her name in her kitchen and putting a new, very loud stereo in her car. 
Another one of the building's residents is Debbie, who's played by Sheila Kelly. She's also looking for love and romance, and she uses a gift certificate she had gotten from her friends for a video dating service. They originally got it for her as a gag gift, but why not? Debbie has the video made, and by the way, watch for a cameo by Tim Burton as the director. And uh, she receives several video responses from a lot of different candidates, some of whom are kind of pretentious and some of whom are kind of desperate. And somewhere in the middle, she's managed to narrow the field with the help of her friends and neighbors to one guy, a fellow named Jamie, who is a bike riding enthusiast and seems to be pretty much on the level. Jamie is played by Peter Horton. Debbie goes a little crazy getting ready for the first date. Uh, she buys an expensive bike. She gets this gaudy riding outfit and she sets a date with Jamie at this high-end restaurant. When Jamie doesn't show up after nearly an hour, Debbie discovers that the restaurant has two locations and she's probably at the wrong one. She rides first home on the bike to see if Jamie left any messages and she discovers he's there talking happily with her roommate Pam. It turns out they knew each other from college. Debbie is immediately jealous and accuses Pam of stealing her date. Since Pam has never been very fond of Debbie, the two start a very loud argument that Jamie overhears. Debbie demands that Pam pay her an amount of money roughly equivalent to the cost of the video. Jamie, being nobody's fool, nopes it out of there. So Debbie takes a vacation she had been planning in Cabo San Lucas, and she asks to be seated next to a single man who turns out to be a precocious pre-teenage boy who hits on her. But when the plane lands, she discovers that the boy's single father compliments her earrings, and nobody ever seemed to like those earrings, so she is immediately smitten. The two hit it off, and they begin a long-distance relationship that looks good, and in fact, we see Cliff helping Debbie move out when she and Stu decide to move in together. Cliff eventually realizes that he can only win Janet back if he treats her better. He leaves a message on her answering machine. He's basically singing a new song he had written for her. He meets her in the elevator of the building when they're both getting out, uh, going out for the evening, and he compliments her, sounding very sincere. She suddenly sneezes and he says, bless you, and the two of them embrace immediately. The film ends with an overhead shot of the apartment building that zooms out to show the entire Seattle skyline with lots of young voices chattering on about love, relationships, and complaints. And since I like to mention anything odd I see in the credits, we should note the film is dedicated to Alice Marie Crow, Cameron Crowe's mother, whom we talked about just two episodes ago. Right. Uh, now, before we get to talking about the movie, I do have to correct some things right. here. Okay. First of all, um, when uh, Steve runs into Linda at the newsstand, it is not a few days after the concert. It is maybe an hour or so after the concert, maybe not even that long, because if you recall, at the beginning of the conversation, when he and Bailey, the friend he went to the, the club with, who, by the way, is played by Jim True, they're still talking loudly because they were in the concert hall the whole time, and it's the newsstand guy who has to tell them, hey, quit being so loud. And they explain, sorry, tonight is club disease. And secondly, um, when Steve waits for four days to call Linda, it's after they've had sex not after they've been to the club. First, they have a date sort of to go have water. He calls her about 
maybe in a day and a half after that. It's after they've had sex that he waits four days to call her. And Linda gets upset by that because she thinks he's playing games with her. And she doesn't want a guy who plays games. And the last thing I have to correct you on is that Cliff is actually helping Steve move out, not Debbie, because Steve and Linda are now getting their own place together. I think we also got to see him helping Debbie too, though. I know, I know that because he, he does he does help Steve because that's Cliff's moment of talking to the camera, right? He's he's yes, moving, he's moving he's, Steve out. He, Yes, but he's helping Debbie by delivering flowers to her. Mm-hmm. And then after she de- after he delivers the flowers, he turns to the camera and says, tomorrow I got to sneak in and spell her name out in rose petals. Can you believe this job? And then there's this great moment where after he says that, he looks up at Janet, who is painting furniture on her balcony. Right. And that sets up when Janet comes home and finds out. And she out discovers the petals, yeah. That petals, yeah. So need to correct you on those. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's talk uh, about the two major criticisms that this movie received. First of all, that it was done to cash in on grunge music for those who uh, don't know who weren't around in the 90s or would choose to forget grunge music was to the excesses of 80s music 80s rock music we should say specifically what punk music was to the excesses of 70s rock music although punk did not become as stratospherically popular when it was introduced as grunge did uh, you have to remember that Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden, all of whom perform songs on the soundtrack to this movie, and all of whom appear in this movie, although Pearl Jam never plays, three of its members, Jeff Ament, Stone Gossett, and Eddie Vedder, play members of Citizen Dick. Uh, We only see them rehearsing a little. And Eddie Vedder, by the way, is playing the drums in the movie. Uh, But Soundgarden and Alice in Chains perform in the movie. And they all became huge stars when grunge music exploded in late 91 up through 92, which is when this movie came out. And actually, the soundtrack to singles became a bigger hit than the movie did and is more fondly remembered in many quarters than the movie is with i well i think it is good reason that the soundtrack is fondly remembered because excuse me it's a very good soundtrack in addition to them you also have a couple songs by paul westerberg formerly of The Replacements, who wrote the score for the movie as well. And then there's uh, old Jimi Hendrix track. Anne and Nancy Wilson, Crow's wife at the time, record a cover of Led Zeppelin's The Battle of Evermore under the name The Lovemongers. And then there are a couple other not-as-famous 
as the other Seattle bands, but important to the grunge era, Mudhoney and Screaming Trees, who have cuts, and Smashing Pumpkins, who were not from Seattle, but who were recommended to Crow by Chris Cornell, uh, have the song Drown. And so you've got a whole representation of grunge music on the soundtrack. And yet the movie started shooting well before grunge hit. And as a matter of fact, Crow started writing this movie in 1984 before anyone had heard the name grunge. And it wasn't until the lead singer of an earlier incarnation of Pearl Jam, Mother Love Bone, whom we also hear in the movie, Andrew Wood had died of an overdose that Crow had decided to shift the movie from its original setting in Arizona to have it set in Seattle. And he also added the slightly darker tone than was originally written for the movie. So this is not a cash-in movie the same way as, for example, A Hard Day's Night was a cash-in, which is not to knock that movie, of course, because it's a brilliant movie. And so was another movie that we have talked about on this show, The Social Network, was a cash-in on Facebook, which, again, is to not knock the movie because The Social Network is a very good movie as well. And I happen to think Singles is a good movie also for reasons that we're going to get to in a moment. But first, Claude, what did you think of the movie? It is a good movie. And, and to, to piggyback on the, on the music thing, I was thinking about this, like, you know, the movie it was released in uh, the fall of 1992. And at that time, you know, a lot of the bands that we see in here we're just starting to break, okay? And like Alice in Chains, like their their second album had, had was just coming out around the same time that this film was released. They'd already released the first single from that album, and it did really well. And and that was in I think June, I want to say it was it was a couple months earlier anyway. So I mean, yeah, and I started thinking about the bands that I'm hearing and and the music that I'm hearing, and and I was like, wow, Crow was on like on the bleeding edge of the grunge movement. I mean, he, he could have, if he, if this had come out just a couple of months earlier, it would have been seen as almost prophetic. It was just like so immersed in the Seattle music scene and it would have, and if grunge had not blown up, it would have been like, this is a good reputation. I'm not, not reputation, rather representation of the music scene. And it was just kind of coincidental that everything just kind of blew up all at the same time. And, and so you know, but I mean, we've talked about Cameron Crowe like numerous times be, before at this point. In fact, as yes. recently as two episodes ago, and and so we recognize that 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 he has always been not just immersed in music and, and knowledgeable about music, but in such a way that that he is always, always, always really well versed in the music that he deals with whenever he does deal with music and. So this this turned out to be this is almost like like Blondie discovering rap kind of kind of thing like rap was around and then Blondie turned it into a thing and Cameron Crowe may have almost kind of sort of uh, done the same thing with grunge here. 
Well, the one grunge act that doesn't get represented is Nirvana, yeah. which he tried to get on, but by that time, the asking price was too high. And actually, the movie was originally supposed to come out in 91, but as with they did with another music-oriented movie that we talked about uh, on an earlier episode, Empire Records, Warner Brothers, the studio that released this movie, really didn't know what to make of the movie. So they shelved this one for a while, and it was only when grunge blew up in popularity that they said, all right, maybe we should release this (laughs) as a way to cash in, which... Ironically, as I said, it didn't. This was nothing more than a modest hit when it hit the theaters. Although, like Say Anything, Crow's previous movie, and like the other movie that we talked about a couple episodes ago, Almost Famous, it did much better when it was released on video. So that was a saving grace for him. The other major criticism that I want to address here is although Claude is a little older than the generation being depicted in this movie, or he was at the time, I was and still am a member of Generation X. Because when uh, Janet is talking in her first monologue to the camera about how she's 23 and she expected more you know she said that she thought when she was 23 people would be living in airlocks and she'd have five kids i was 23 when this movie originally was supposed to come out in 91 i was only 24 when it did come out in 92 so i will accept the fact that this is considered a generation x movie much in the same way that reality bites which came out a couple years later and also did not do terribly well at the box office although it also developed a cult following when it was released on video is considered a gen x movie what i will not accept is the designation that it was given as a slacker movie, which is the um, adjective that is often associated with Generation X folks, most likely to the movie that came out the year before this, Richard Linklater's movie called Slacker, because all of these characters have jobs. And Mm -hmm. we see all of them except for Debbie working at them. We see Steve um, pitching his idea of the super train, uh, not just to the mayor, who, by the way, is played by Tom Skerritt in a nifty little cameo, but to people before that all the way. And we see the model of it. We see Linda at work. Um, at the Seattle Environmental Council, although we don't see what work she does when she goes up to Alaska, probably because they couldn't afford to show that, and it would be too much of a distraction, I think. And even though Cliff is this uh, macho posturing type of lead singer 
from what we hear of the reviews, he has these jobs that we see him work at as a waiter at the cafe that Janet also works at, as a um, guy who does construction work, as as a flower delivery person. And Janet, of course, is uh, taking this waitress uh, job at the cafe so that she can pay off her student loans and um, then do her chosen profession, which is architecture. Uh, She mentions that she wants to redesign the fountain so that there's no water there so people can sit in that. So all these folks have jobs that they take seriously. So this is not a slacker movie. And I don't know why there are people who at the time and still today persist in calling it a slacker movie. No, I, I don't get that at all. Because because as you say, not only do they have jobs, but we see most of them doing their jobs. Everybody is pretty serious about what they're doing. You know, and, and Cliff, yeah, I mean, he's he's a little bit of a, you know, I, 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 I get it. I mean, he's, he's kind of a stereotypical rock and roll dude kind of thing. And at the same time, He's hustling. He's out there doing his thing to 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 make his nut. And 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 Debbie Sheila Kelly uh, Kelly's character is like you said. We don't know quite what she does, but she can clearly afford to do some of the things she does because she spends the money on the expensive bicycle and that ridiculous outfit and the dinner at the you know the expensive restaurant. And then when that none of that works out. She said, the hell with it. I'm going to fly to Mexico. And so and she can. She can afford to do that sort of thing. So this is clearly somebody who is a serious character and has has the means to do that sort of thing. And and and, and I'll even go as far as you've got the scene where Steve goes to the uh, to the to the pharmacy to pick up the uh, the tests. And I didn't mention this this whole scene at all, but he bumps into the cashier at the at the pharmacy and it's a guy named uh, Doug who's played by Jeremy Piven and you know again this is a guy with a job and he's doing his thing and and he seems to be you know at least pretty good at it and yet at the same time I think most of the other people are doing a little bit better than he is but but yeah there I, I there's no way that I would characterize this as a, as a slacker film well, Debbie does mention really quick in her very first scene after she's told uh, everyone in the cafe that she is going to do the video date thing. That, And also in the video she makes for her video date that she's a ad executive at a TV station. That's right. She did say that. Yeah. But she doesn't. I remember, I remember uh, from the video. Don't, yeah. But we don't um, see what um, – we don't see her at work, but – we do we do know what she's uh, that now I mentioned Tom Skerritt really quick. Um, there are all sorts of cameos in the movie, and not just from the musicians. Uh, Chris Cornell, in addition to performing, he's the guy standing next to Cliff when he's cranking up the speakers that he's just installed in Janet's car before they shatter her windows. And um, also another musician who shows up is uh, Tad Doyle, or Thomas D. Doyle, as he's billed in the movie. He was the lead singer of the group Tad. When Janet has her uh, face uh, caked up and making that call late at night to Cliff, 
saying that she wants him badly and she's not wearing anything. He's the wrong number at the end of the line where he says, I think he got the wrong number, lady, but I'm coming right over. Yeah, I actually thought that was uh, Patton Oswalt at first. I had to go look it up. Yeah. And then also one of the people who is one of the crazier people who drives um, Debbie to Peter Horton all the more, um, who's among the montage of people who respond to Debbie's video date message, is a guy by the name of Bruce Pavitt, who was the co-founder and co-owner of Sub Pop Records, which is where a lot of grunge groups started out at before they jumped to a mainstream label. And why we see so much sub-pop paraphernalia around the film. Right. But in addition to those, we also have the well-known cameos, I should say. Uh, I don't know if Tom Skerritt was exactly famous, but he had done quite a few movies um, and he was a resident of Seattle. No, well-known movies. He was in MASH. He was in The Turning Point. He was in Alien. And yeah. I don't... Yeah, Al- Aliens. Alien. Yeah. And First he one. wasn't... Yes. And he wasn't someone who would open a movie, per se, like a superstar, but he was someone well-known. And I think this is pre-Picket Fences, So, you know, he was about to become a household name, but he was still pretty well known. And then, of course, in what is arguably the movie's funniest scene, uh, when Steve and Linda are having sex, uh, since Steve and Linda had argued about him before and afterwards, when Linda is asking him uh, during the uh, moment, Uh, What are you thinking about right now? Steve flashes to an interview with Xavier McDaniel, who was a very well-known player for the Seattle Supersonics at the time. And he gives uh, a bit of advice to Steve that, am I allowed to say it? Go for it. Okay. He said, when the interview asks him anything else, X, he turns to the camera and says, yes, Steve, don't come yet. <laughs> Which, as I said, is the arguably the funniest moment in the movie. Certainly got the biggest laugh when I saw this in the theater. And then uh, Eric Stoltz um, has a brief appearance as a very bitter mime yeah. who Steve and uh, Bailey pick up when they're trying to find the club that uh, Allison Chains is playing at. And Peter Horton was pretty well known at the time because 30-something had only ended a couple of years before, and he was one of the regulars on that. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Tim Burton uh, is the uh, director of Debbie's video. Uh, he gets one line, which is pretty funny, when the woman running the video date service turns to him and says, 10 bucks extra. And uh, Tim Burton's character, whom she calls the next Martin Scorsese, (laughs) will shoot your video for you. And Burton looks up, looks at Debbie, and he says, 20, which Mm -hmm. is pretty funny. And we also have some cameos from people before they were famous. When Steve and Linda go out for water because he couldn't get her to agree to go out for anything else. They're trying to talking about 
environmental issues because they're both interested in that while this couple is making out hot and heavy in the booth next to them. And it turns out the guy is Paul Giamatti before he was famous. Mm -hmm. And then also um, Debbie's roommate, who gets another one, who is arguing with her over Pete and Horton's character, is played by Allie Walker a few years before Profiler came on the air and made her somewhat famous. And finally, uh, the guy who Debbie meets in Mexico at the airport and who compliments her earrings is played by none other than Spy Daddy himself, Victor Garber. That's right. Although he had been kicking around in movies for a while. He played Jesus, for example, in the movie version of Godspell, which had come out 10, 15 years before that maybe even um, older than that. But he wasn't really a well-known name at the time. It wasn't until the one-two combination of Alias, where, as I said, he played Spy Daddy, and Titanic, where he plays the designer of the Titanic, that he became, if not exactly a superstar, then at least somewhat well-known to the extent of he got a lot more work as a result. And you can see him now as a recurring character on uh, uh, the Orville. Okay. Uh, That's the uh, Seth MacFarlane uh, Star Trek spoof, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So now I want to talk about uh, a scene that you mentioned briefly, and that's the scene when Steve first meets Linda at the uh, club where they're listening to Alice and Shane's because I've used this as a point of discussion for a lot of things. Uh, The whole speech that he gives that he said that, you know, he could have just ignored her or he could have put on an act. And when he's talking about, you know, how he could have put on an act, um, Linda's friend, who, by the way, is played by Devin Raymond, and her character's name is uh, Ruth, uh, gives a sharp look at that. Um, and then he says, I could, or I could just be myself and I'd show C. And then Linda says to him, I think, A, you have an act, and B, not having an act is your act. That can be seen sort of a metaphor for talking about any art in particular, uh, whether or not, you know, when I hear people talking about, oh, this movie, this song, or this TV show, this books, and et cetera, is being manipulative, because all art is in some way manipulative. Mm -hmm. It's just that some art is obvious about it while some art tries to disguise that and by not having an act as linda puts it is having an act in a way a movie acting like it's trying not to be manipulative is being Being manipulative manipulative in the way that it's yeah so i think singles is a movie that is trying not to mean 
is manipulative, even though it's putting on an act as to trying not to be manipulative. But so what? It works. Yeah, it it absolutely does. And, and, you know, I... We, we, we hear all the time, like, you know, art is meant to provoke something, okay? It, you know, and, and, and it, it doesn't always have to be, you know, a great thing. You know, sometimes it's just like, you know, the picture of kittens and it makes you happy. And other times it's going to make you angry for one reason or another. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, sometimes it is what it is and it's not meant to be especially deep or complex or anything like that. That's not necessarily a bad thing, I don't think. Right, but I think the movie is very smart Mm -hmm. in how it does depict the subject of love and very smart in how it's telling the story as well. As far as how it's depicting love, you get that great scene with Janet um, throwing um, wadded up paper towels in the trash can while she's deciding whether or not she should call Cliff and um, whether, you know, if she makes it, is that a sign? Or when she misses it, she decides two out of three to, you know, to keep going until she gets the answer that she's looking for instead of actually responding to the sign that she thinks is going to come. Especially then, as much as she's forgotten what she decided hitting or missing the garbage pail will, will mean. Right. And then there's also the scene where Janet discovers Steve disheveled in his apartment. And after she gives him the instructions for the secret knock, she hugs him and tells him to take care of himself, after which he kisses her. Now, you didn't mention this, but Steve and Janet used to be involved in, with each other. In yeah. fact, there's a conversation that they have where they admit that they were better as friends. And so Janet breaks off the kiss and they give each other this look. And Steve says, you know, in an alternate universe, we'd be scorch a scorching couple. And Janet smiles and says... Yeah, but in this one, Neighbors. Mm -hmm. And a dumber movie would have seen some rekindled passion between the two of them. But Crow leaves it at that. And that's a smart decision. And then also, let's talk about that secret knock again. Because, A, a dumber movie would have shown a scene between Janet and Linda beforehand when she's telling her about the secret knock. Or would have had a scene after they embrace a scene of Janet smiling to herself. But again, Crow doesn't do that. Yeah. And it's all the smarter because of that. Now, interestingly enough, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's it's smart on both counts. And, and I, it actually, you know, I, I, I think it, it actually, you know, took me out of it just a little bit at the end when we see that Janet is going to get back together with Cliff. I wouldn't have minded like a positive outlook for their relationship, you know, as friends, but not necessarily as a couple again. Well, it's set up for again by the fact that when she fakes sneezes, 
he doesn't do anything and that she and that's when she decides to break up with him then she honestly sneezes and he's been working towards for granted anymore and even admitting that he took her for granted and then he responds bless you that you know, I think that sets sets up. And the fact that the movie doesn't really call attention to that fact, it just has her turn and say, hey, wait a minute. And then they embrace, you know, because everyone in the audience, when I um, saw this movie in the theater, laughed at that moment because we knew what was coming. But again, Crow smartly doesn't pet, um, pet, um wink at the audience over that. Now, interestingly, Crow himself was disappointed in this movie. He wanted this to have the feel of an album. And that's why we have chapter titles throughout the movie, uh, including um, the first one where it's a line that Steve will say in his monologue, uh, something his father said to him, have fun, stay single. That line is over a still from one of the great screwball comedies ever made, Nothing Sacred. Mm -hmm. But Crow felt that it didn't really work as well as he thought it should have. But as I said, I love this movie. You were about to jump in with something. Um, well, only that that the, the that scene was actually it was a fight scene going on there where we get the still. Oops, sorry about that. Where we get the the still shot from for uh, stay single. And, and but but the other thing was was that and I can I can kind of understand that in, in the sense that that I think he was trying to set this film up as like a series of chapters, and that didn't quite work out, especially in as much as more often than not, if there was a title to the chapter and there was that title came up almost immediately as, as you know, here's going to be the theme of, of whatever comes next. And so it was, it was almost superfluous to, to do those still images with the titles, frankly, I think. Well, I didn't mind that. I didn't mind them. So much I'm not saying they were bad weren't... exactly, but, but it, in, in the end, I think they wound up being pointless. Unlike Have Fun, Stay Single, none of the, uh, and uh, the one at the end, What Took You So Long, none of them were direct lifts from dialogue that were just sort of references to what we'd hear later. So it worked for me. Now, uh, two, now one chapter that he wanted to include, but it got cut out is a scene where Bailey, who is the least developed of the major characters, even though he also has a job, he's a major D that we never see him work at, he goes to a French club where everyone's talking in French, including him, uh, because as he says to Steve early on, I live my life like a French movie. Um, that's the setup for that scene. Uh, that was his... Crow's tribute to the new wave, which, as we discussed in the other films of Crow's that we've talked about, Crow was a big fan of that as well. Um, but let's go back to the music real quick before we talk about the show that was inspired by this. In the 90s, most romantic comedies following the lead of When Harry Met Sally, which I hope we talk about in a future episode, um, were always using standards 
uh, as their music, uh, aside from the score. And so a lot of people were wondering as well about this movie, you know, why are you using grunge other than the fact that it's set in Seattle? I think this is also where some of the cash-in criticism came. But I would argue that the music also works emotionally for the movie. And it goes in with the fact that this is not a brightly lit movie, mm-hmm. unlike most romantic comedies. The cinematography for this movie, by the way, was done by uh, Tak Fujimoto and Yuli Steiger. Tak Fujimoto is uh, probably best known for his work with Jonathan Demme, though he's also worked with M. Night Shyamalan as well. But um, you've got a lot of darkly lit scenes, not just in the clubs, but elsewhere at night. And it's more realistically lighted than most um, romantic comedies are. And the emotions that are expressed, for example, in the scene where Steve is pouring his heart out to Linda on the answering message that she never hears we've got sound we've got Soundgarden playing birth ritual um in the background they're performing it live at the club and you know all of that ties into the churning emotions that steve's feeling during that scene and in general what the characters are feeling so i think the grunge works as an emotional counterweight to what the characters are feeling. They may act like things are light and fun at the surface, but there's more going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And it occurs to me, like when you were talking about that, and the the, the other funny thing about that scene is all the people outside the phone booth banging on the door wanting to get in because they think it's the bathroom. And at one point he actually has to shout at the door, it's not the bathroom, which they're not listening. They're still pounding away at. and, and, And so just adding to his internal turmoil that, that that's going on there. But the other thing that, that occurs to me is like, if they made this film today, it would have to be a period piece because there is so much stuff in this film that is dependent upon the technology of the time being what it was. All right. Right. And, and you know, so you, you could, because you've got things like pay phones and answering machines and nobody's got FaceTime, so they can't talk to each other while she's in Alaska and, you know, that kind of thing. And there wasn't email or anything like that. And even the, the, the answering machine itself was, was um, I think some people would view incorrectly that the tape was running backwards when they did the close-up of the tape. But the fact that I had one of those machines, actually, and it was designed to run forwards, and then when it ran out, it would run backwards and play and do side B. So it actually was working exactly the way it was supposed to. But yes, they were also prone to chewing up the tape. Yes, unfortunately, I've had that experience myself. Now, one quick thing before we get to the TV show that this inspired, we haven't mentioned any of the actors, although Crow apparently had a difficult time with Campbell Scott during the making of this. You wouldn't mm. get guess so from the movie as he's effortless, I think, in his performance. He, he and Kira Sedgwick uh, have good chemistry together. Uh, Bridget Fonda, who we've talked about before, this part was written for her directly, and she's amazing. 
Uh, Matt Dillon, um, the 90s for him were an interesting decade in the fact that he transitioned from these uh, dramatic roles from the 80s into mostly doing comedies and doing quite well at them, I should add. Uh, I'm not the big fan of There's Something About Mary that a lot of people are, but he, to me, is the funniest thing about it. Mm -hmm. And um, he's also very funny and good here. And in general, all the cast is very good here. They, 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 they are good. I, I, I always liked Jane Fonda, uh, Jane Fonda, uh, Bridget Fonda, you know, in, in anything yes. that I have seen her in. Even when she was in, yes. it was like basically it was a cameo in, in uh, Godfather 3. And she starts out yes. one way and she turns out, in a, like not, not to be a bad person, but, but she starts out as this very confident woman, as you know, the reporter. And then she freaks when, the, when you get that scene later on where she is, where she's with uh, Andy Garcia's character. And that's the last we see of her in the film. It's just she's always been yes. so good. And she hasn't done anything film-wise, at least as an actress, in like 20 years now. And I kind of wonder what's what's happened to her. Yeah, which is sad. I, I mean, if she did something. it of yeah, if she did it of her own volition, mm -hmm. I mean, good. I mean, I wish her well, but it would be nice to see her on screen again. Interestingly enough, one bit of casting trivia here: Jennifer Jason Lee was up for the part of Linda originally, but ended up turning it down. Had she decided to do it, this would have been the other movie that she and Fonda appeared in uh, in 92, the other being Single White Female, which is a movie I do not like at all, despite the t those two actresses being in it. Uh, but Kira Sedgwick, I think, works out just fine. And mm -hmm. now let's get to the movie that this inspired, the TV show that this inspired, excuse me. Warner Brothers wanted to turn this into a TV show, but Crow said absolutely not. So what instead happened was they decided to take the framework of the show uh, a bunch of friends who hang out a lot in a coffee shop move the setting to New York and uh, put all six friends in together. And what did what do we get here? The show Friends, which became a big hit soundtrack for NBC and uh, started just a couple years after the movie came out. And Crow actually said that um, his mom would used to tease him every year by saying, you know, if you had just said yes <laughs> to this, you would have had a castle by now, let alone a mansion. And he said, uh, no. And yes, Warner Brothers TV did produce Friends. And he says, I don't need a castle. I'm happy where I am. So uh, Friends is a show I have seen, uh, and while there are some parts of it that are very funny, and Lisa Kudrow does amazing work, in my opinion, as Phoebe. Absolutely. Um, I don't like it as much as singles. I think it falls into a lot of the sitcom traps that singles avoids. Yeah, it it does, and and again, as 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 with Stalag Seventeen and Hogan's Heroes, you really have a tough time drawing a direct line from one character to another. Although I will note two things: is that 
you know, friends, at least the opening title logo and, and, and singles both have like a handwritten looking font for their titles and, and for the intertitles on singles. And then the other thing that, that, that occurred to me, and I thought this was going to be a little bit of a, like, like I, I, I thought that friends was going to be a little bit of a, of a shout out towards singles, but then we never saw the thing happen was Kira Sedgwick talking about the fountain. And I was like, oh, we're going to get a scene with a fountain. And that's where singles, I'm sorry, that's where Friends would have gotten their fountain opening credits bit from. But actually, it's Bridget Fonda who says that. I'm sorry, you're right. Remember, she's the architecturist and Janet. Okay. uh, So is there anything else you want to add here before we wrap this up? No, I think I have shot up all my notes here. All right. So this is the part of the episode where we tell you that uh, if you want to watch Starlog 17 or Singles, they are both available on DVD and Blu-ray. But if you prefer to stream, Starlog 17 is available to stream through Roku and through Tubi if you're willing to put up with the ads. And didn't you mention last time about Canopy as well for this movie? It's on Canopy, and I saw it on HBO Max. Okay. Well, Canopy, of course, you can only watch it on if you um, subscribe through your library. But you can also rent or buy Starlog 17 through Amazon, Google Play, and most of the other streaming services. Whereas singles, you can rent or buy through Amazon, Google Play, and most of the other streaming services. And, and coming up, what's coming up next time? Sorry. Okay, <laughs> we're going to start a series of what we what we call around the world because we're going to talk about movies from several different countries. Most of these movies will not be in English. Um, and first, we're going to Mexico to explore two of the movies made in Mexico that Alfonso Cuaron directed, who we discussed in an earlier episode when we talked about Children of Men. From 2001, although it was released in the U.S. in 2002, Itumama Tambian, and from 2018, Roma. Now, both Itumama Tambian and Roma are available on DVD through the Criterion Collection, but again, if you prefer to stream, you can stream Itsumama Tambian through AMC Plus if you subscribe through it through Amazon or Roku, or you can get it through DirecTV if you subscribe to them, or you can rent or buy it through Apple TV, Amazon, or Google Play only. Whereas for Roma, you can watch it only online if you subscribe to Netflix, which is how I first watched it. And our Rino. show ha- has a Facebook page and a Twitter page. And if you have a question or comment, you can leave a comment on our Facebook or Twitter page as well as email us. Our email address is wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And I myself, Sean Gallagher, am also on Facebook and I lurk at Instagram. And how about you, Claude? Well, you can find me on the uh, Twitter machine at Claude Call. And you can also check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at 
the crazy name of howgooditis.com. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Please take us away. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. 